Hi, everybody. This is Maria Pesson, founder of For Women Over 50, a website and Facebook group that helps women live their best life in the second part of their life. And today on our podcast, we have Bron Williams, the bias specialist, who's going to tell us her story and how she's living her best life now. So Bron, um, why don't you tell us, say hello and tell us about yourself. Thanks, Maria. It's uh, lovely to be able to talk with you and with your listeners. So as you can probably tell from my accent, I don't live in the US. Um, I'm in Australia. So it's early morning here as I'm talking with you and it's winter. And I know um, where you are, it's you're having heat waves. So we've got yeah. the exact opposite. Serious heat waves. <laughs> yes, yes. So uh, so we're in the throes of winter and we're having quite a cold winter. So it's uh, I just love the fact that we can talk to one another across the world. It doesn't matter where we are. And um, I'm probably moving into my last third of life. Uh, so have definitely hit the, uh, the halfway mark. And um, rather than slowing down, I'm picking up a speed. It reminds me of that, um, you know, old joke about, you know, don't worry about getting over the hill because that's when you pick up speed. And I'm certainly doing that. So um, a little bit about me. I'm a child of the 1950s, so born in the 50s, grew up in the 60s, a teenager in the 70s. So that sort of puts me a little bit into context. I am the mother of three sons, two of whom are married, and I have six grandchildren, uh, five granddaughters and one grandson, and my eldest granddaughter just recently turned 18. Um, I became, yeah, it's, it's wonderful. Uh, so it's really interesting when your grandchildren are becoming adults. Uh, I became a grandmother at the ripe old age of 48. My eldest son got married when he was 19 and they had their uh, family very early. So I was a young grandma, which was lovely because it meant I was able to uh, really enjoy my grandchildren while I still had heaps of energy. Not that I don't have still have energy, but um, I know over the last 18 years, my, my energy has reduced a little bit. So that's me family background wise. From a professional perspective, um, at the age of eight, I knew I wanted to be a teacher. And so I took that path and uh, did my teacher training and stayed in the education profession for about 30 years and was at one point a principal of a small school. So that was a wonderful experience. I learned a lot, as um, I think all good teachers do. We have to be continual learners. But also, as lots of people happen to, or happen to people, uh, midlife brought divorce. This was something I instigated. Um, I left the marriage not really knowing why I was going, but just knowing it couldn't stay. And after probably about 15 years um, of really trying, working hard to make the marriage work and nothing was happening you know, having any difference. So it was at this point that I thought, right, let's do some reinventing of Bron. And I joined the Salvation Army and did a degree in theology and became an ordained minister with the Salvation Army. So looking after a, um, a church and a welfare centre in Canberra. And it was at this time that the Australian Federal Government had reopened their offshore processing centre for asylum seekers 
on Nauru, which is a little island in the Pacific, and Manus Island, which is part of Papua New Guinea. I'm sorry, I missed oh. a little bit of what you said. They, they opened up a what? An offshore processing centre for asylum seekers. Oh, got it. Now I got it. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Um, Aussie, we do, us Aussies, we do tend to speak quickly. So, yeah, please slow me down if, if, I, if I speak well, I'm up I'm a New too Yorker, much. so I'm kind of used to that. Ah, good, good. Um, yeah, so I put my hand up as a volunteer to go to Nauru, not because I had a burning desire to work with refugees or to work in the tropics for that matter, but because I couldn't think of any reason why not to. And that sort of serendipitous decision changed my life. It changed the course of my life and it changed the focus of my life because it was while I was on Nauru that I was conf I first started to um, even understand about unconscious bias. I hadn't even given it any thought. I don't think I'd even come across the term. So this is 10 years ago now. And But what I started to see in myself was uh, a fear around the, um, the asylum seekers. At that stage, they were all men because they were so different to me. I'd grown up in a largely white, middle-class, conservative Bible Belt area of Sydney where everybody looked like me, sounded like me, thought like me. And here I was um, now working with men of, you know, all varying shades of brown and black, spoke all these languages I couldn't understand and who I knew mostly came from Muslim countries. And, you know, my background was um, as a Christian. So I found that very confronting. And I had to take a long, hard look at myself because I would have said up until that point that I didn't have a racist bone in my body, but I realised, and like this doesn't happen overnight, you know, I'm a reflective sort of person. And so it took me a while to go, actually, Bron, this is something about your attitude to these people. And I realised that because I'd had such a limited experience of, of other people, I somewhere along the line had learned that difference was a threat. And so I felt these men were a threat to me, even though physically they were not. Um, and so I had no sort of physical reason to see them as a threat. And that helped me see that, well, probably I'd had some racist tendencies, even though cognitively, you know, logically I would have said that I didn't. So I had to face that, which was, you know, not a nice thing to have to own. But I've learned that when you own the uncomfortable things about yourself, it takes away the guilt and shame because you just go, well, look, this is part of my story. This is part of how I grew up. Um, it's part of how my thinking has been. So what do I do with it now? And that's then you get a choice. And then the second thing I learned was as I was observing the way that the white people who were coming and working on Nauru were treating the Nauruans. So we had people from Australia, from New Zealand, the UK and the US, all working there on the various teams. And all of us, and that included myself, had this sort of subtle superiority towards the Nauruans and their way of thinking. It was like, well, you know, look, I'm university educated. I come from a developed country. Surely we would know better about how to do things than people who, you know, haven't 
usually done much more than um, a high school education and not been off this tiny little island. So I sat down with Fatima, who headed up the Nauruan team for the Salvation Army at the time, and said, look, this is what I'm observing. And what she said back to me really floored me. She said, we know that about you guys, but we just accept it. And I thought, oh, my goodness, this is true. This is real. This sense of superiority because I was white and I'd come from a developed country. Um, and that that stage, I didn't know anything about uh, white privilege or white superiority. And so I went looking for it. So it was those two things, understanding that somewhere along the line, I'd, I'd learned some racist ideas and that I had this, I had white privilege and I had to learn about that. And that then changed the whole course of what I was doing because um, I knew that if I, who was just an ordinary Aussie from suburban Sydney, was seeing these things in myself, then there were lots of other people who were just like me operating in ways that were not helpful. And so that set me on a path of helping people be able to see, you know, what bias is all about and to look mostly at ourselves because we can see the biases in other people quite easily, but we, to have a look at ourselves and go, well, look, are, the, are my ways of thinking actually really helpful? If they're not, what can I do to change them? So that's where I'm at at the, at the moment now is working with women, particularly who are in leadership, to help them look at their own ways of thinking, to have courageous conversations and then be able to navigate the changes in culture that come because of the changes that we make in ourselves. So you found your passion. At a I did. You had your first passion being a teacher, and then you found your second passion working with these women to help empower them to see past their own biases. Yeah, I think actually this is my third passion because teaching was certainly my first passion. Working with the Salvation Army, working with marginalised and vulnerable people, that I joined the Salvation Army because I felt their DNA resonated with mine. So that was my second passion. And then, so this is now the third. This is my third act. Um, I'm in that, you know, I'm in my 60s. So I'm in this third stage of my life now. And this is my third act. And uh, I'm going to hopefully go out with a bang. Good for you. So tell me what your life looks like now that you've started on this new path. Yeah. Thanks, Maria, for asking that. Because one of the most significant things that has happened on the, um, has happened just recently, um, on the day before my 66th birthday, I had a marriage proposal. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. Congratulations. I know. Did you say yes? I did, yes, yes. So how yes, did you I'm, meet um, your future husband? Um, where else? Online, on a dating site. How old were you when you met him? Um, I was 62, 63. So we've known each other for um, three or four years now. And so found uh, yeah, a new so, passion and a new love in your 60s. I know, yes. Isn't that amazing? And, you know, I'd, because um, I, I divorced um, in my early 50s, 
had a couple of relationships in that time. And it was after the, the second sort of post-divorce relationship broke up that I realised I'm really happy on my own. You know, I don't, I don't need a partner, but I wanted a partner. I loved being in a relationship with somebody. So I was then quite intentional about setting out and looking for um, somebody that I could spend the rest of my life with. And uh, I could you know, online dating is um, is a minefield. It doesn't matter whether you're in your 60s or in your 20s, it's a minefield. And I was I was getting very tired of the, the blokes who'd rock up and go, oh, hello, sexy button, you know, hi, your babe, or, you know, what a gorgeous smile. It's like, I want somebody to talk to who, you know, sees me as a person. And I'd had, I'd done a bungee jump of the Auckland Bridge and had that photo up as part of my profile pics. And Bill, his opening line to me was, I see you've done a bungee jump. I did one in Christchurch. And I thought, wow, here's a man I might actually be able to talk to. So he didn't try to chat me up, but he tried to find a way of connecting. And, you know, he's very different it was very different to my ex-husband, very different to the men I've dated in the past. And it's probably a really good thing because we have, this is the easiest relationship I've ever had. We just get on really well. It doesn't mean that we see eye to eye all the time. You know, we're, um, we're old enough to not, um, you know, have too much rose-coloured glasses, but we are just in sync and it's been wonderful. So, um, yeah, wow. there is, so there your is third hope. act has been your best act, it sounds like. <clears throat> I think it is. And, you know, one of the things that, um, look, hadn't been brought up in a very conservative Christian uh, environment as a young person, I followed the path that, well, like so many women, I think, of my generation, and a lot of your listeners I know will relate to this, you know, where there were expectations and some fairly narrow expectations of what a woman should do. And for me, that was, yes, you can go and work for a bit, but then your real job is to settle down um, and have children. And I followed that path. And after my divorce, a, a dear friend of mine asked me a most significant question. He said, if you hadn't grown up in a Christian environment, how would your life have turned out? And almost immediately I said to him, I, um, I would have gone more into academia and probably not got married. You know, been had relationships, but I'm not sure about, you know, the whole family thing. Like, I love my sons, uh, my daughters-in-law, my grandchildren, but I'm, I, I'm not sure that if I'd had, if I'd felt I'd had a choice, whether I would have followed that path. Um, but interestingly, this year, I started PhD studies. So I am going to end up somewhere along the line, there's going to be a Dr. Bronwyn Williams on the stage. Wow, you are impressive. You're changing a lot of areas. You know, your relationship reminds me of something I read recently that was profound for me. And it was um, someone who said that um, your relationship with your significant other should be your happy place. And I thought, oh my God, I never had that. 
I've been married wow. twice and my marriage was never my happy place. And to think that that's what it should be and that's what it could be really blew yeah. my mind. In fact, I was talking to my daughter who's 30 years old about it. And I said, is your relationship your happy place? And she said, absolutely. You mean yours wasn't? She was like shocked that someone would be in a relationship and it wasn't their happy place. But, you know, mine were tough. And I always thought you're supposed to work on the relationship. And you get oh, oh. right. And it was never going to be right. Neither no. one was ever going to be right. So, you know, that whole thought that you're supposed to work it out and you're supposed to work through it was really not serving me. And so now... I hear about what your situation is and how you've found the love of your life who mm. really makes you happy and is your happy place. You found a new passion to explore. You're going back for your PhD and what are you, 66, you said? 66, yeah. So you're 66 and look at what your life is like. And then you have the benefit of having grandchildren and you could send them home at night. So you have all the good stuff without any of the bad stuff. I mean, your life sounds wonderful. Good for you. And look, it's taken me a while to, um, to settle into this place because, because it was so different. And I so hear you, Maria, when you say that, um, you know, your relationship should, be, relationship should be a happy place. When I first got together with Bill, I'm thinking... There has to be something wrong. This is too easy. I know. Because, what you mean? Yeah, because my marriage was tough. And then the other two relationships that I had were not easy. I had, again, I had to work at it. You know, one of my mantras in my marriage was, if only I can get this right, because I was taking all this responsibility for the health of the relationship, thinking that if I changed then my partner would, would change along with me and things would be better than they were. And, of course, that's the biggest lie under the sun. You know, I could change as much as I like and the other person will never, you know, unless they want to. Right. You can't make people change. They are who no. they are. They can evolve, but they're not going to change. Yes, Oh, that's right. That's right. So, uh, yeah, it took me probably 18 months of being in a relationship with Bill for me to realise that actually this is how a relationship not only can be but should be. It should be our happy place. You know, because I'd, um, I'd recognised before I'd left my, uh, my ex-husband that got my home was no longer my safe place. Like, it wasn't that there was any physical violence or evil verbal like anger it was just he's passive aggressive so it was just this undermining and undercutting and you know a word here and a word there that put me down belittled me um yeah it was just i, I used to call it death by a thousand cuts and i'm sure some of your listeners will go yep yeah, i know exactly what you're talking about yeah, I know exactly what you mean. My um, second husband was actually pretty abusive verbally, not physically. Uh, and he just made me miserable. I, he was always mad at me about something and I was always unhappy. But, 
you know, in between bouts of unhappiness, there was ha happy times. It wasn't, you know, 100% bad. But, um, you know, I always thought I should try harder. I should try yes. harder. And if we try harder, you know, it'll get better because you can't just throw away a marriage because marriages are, you know, sacred. Mm. Two forces later, I obviously don't <laughs> believe that anymore. <laughs> but I thought, you know, you're not supposed to run away just because you have hard times. But, um, yep. but actually, when I got divorced to my from my second husband, I remember feeling like I was the happiest divorced person around. Wow, it was like a relief, yeah. a relief to get out of that relationship. So tell me more. So how are you? Um, how are you spending your days these days? Mm. What does your life look like? Yeah, um, I have uh, just recently um, filmed a show reel because I'm really stepping into the professional speaking space, which of course I wanted to do back in the beginning of um, 2020, didn't I? And then this global pandemic got in the way. So anyway, two years later, we're, we're picking up those pieces again. So really, um, uh, I have done, you know, 30 years of public speaking and all the different things that I've, um, the roles that I've had. And so now really turning my uh, focus to professional speaking and whether that's on, um, you know, a conference stage at an in-house event or by running workshops, being able to communicate because is so important to me. My three core values are courage, creativity and connection. So to, you know. Superpowers now that you're over 50? Yeah, look, I think I think you're right. I, I don't know that as women I you know I can't speak for men but as women I don't think we start to identify what our superpowers are until you know late 40s early 50s where we've got enough time you know if we've had a family you know they're in that sort of teenage bracket and we're out of the whole nappies and you know little children and all the busyness that goes with us and we have enough time to take a step back and go what am I actually about and I know uh, I was in my early 50s when I first recognised what my core values are and what my superpowers are. And it's good to come back to those over and over again, whether you're running a business, whether you're, you know, in your relationships, you know, whatever it is, it's okay. What are, what are the things that make me tick? And am I staying true to those? Because I think, you know, the world still tries to tell us and particularly as women, what we should do. I, I believe that word needs to be banned from the English language. Um, you know, how, what we can do, what we can't do, what we're capable of, particularly as we're ageing, all of those things. But if we keep coming back to our core values, our superpowers and go, this is what I'm made of, how do I now use this? Um, and make sure that you're bringing those things with you quite intentionally every day. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story. It's very inspiring. It makes me want to do even more with my life than I'm already doing. So thank you for sharing that. If people want to find you and learn more about you, how would they do that? Uh, well, I can jump over to my website, which is bronwilliams.com. And if they'd like to get in touch with me directly, 
Email is info at bronwilliams.com or just stalk me on LinkedIn. I'm there. That's great. I'm really, anything else that you want to share with us before we go? Yeah, look, I think it's one of the things that the most one of the most significant things that I heard from um, a counsellor, you know, because I went through quite a bit of counselling post-divorce, working out what was going on and what was I going to do. And I had one of those aha moments, as we often do. And I, you know, shook myself, my head and go, oh, why, did, why didn't I know this before now? And she said to me, why did you expect to know this before now? And that has been the most helpful thing for me because I think we are often as women really hard on ourselves. We expect that we should know something or we should be somewhere else or, you know, have reached a certain goal. But why? Just, you know, live with where you're up to now. If you're learning something about yourself or about business at this point, that's what you're supposed to be learning. You know, I have this education and not-for-profit background. I've had to learn a lot about business in the last six or seven years because I knew nothing. It's about being kind to ourselves. You know, be kind to yourself. You're, if you're learning new things in your second half of your life, that is amazing. You should always be learning. I agree with you. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. And then... For our audience, I just want to suggest that you go to Facebook and join our group for women over 50. You'll get a lot of um, empowerment ideas, encouragement, tips, and, and just fun stuff. So go to Facebook and join us. And um, Ron, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure having you and have a good day. It's been thank you, Maria. I've loved being here.